Lord Jesus, we need so much to have your spirit. Lord, I pray that you will speak to every person who is listening to this presentation. Help them to understand how deeply you want them to embrace community, how deeply you want us to understand how your love affects our lives. Thank you so much, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Now, this presentation, you remember, is part two from the first one that we just did, When People Are Big and God is Small. We talked about how when we're looking unto Jesus, that is the path to perfect balance. But the devil likes to get us off on one side or the other side, and he doesn't actually really care which side he can get us off into because we will mar the image of God and damage our own relationship with God and others if we fall off onto one side or the other. Now, last presentation, we talked about immersionism, that when we're not looking unto Jesus, sometimes we fall into needing people too much, making our relationships with other people too important, and getting our sense of identity and worth and lovability out of what people think of us or how much they need us or how much we're valued or whatever, any of those things. So when we are focused too much on relationships and needing people, we slip into immersionism. This presentation we're talking about isolationism, the opposite side, where we don't need people, where we don't connect deeply enough with people. And, um, you know, remember, the narrow way has two sides we can fall off of, but both of them are the same thing, self-focus. Thinking that we need others too much or thinking that we don't need anybody, neither one of those is a reflection of God's way of living. <clears throat> on the one side is seeking pleasure, immersionism. On the other side is avoiding pain. And both of those are self-centered ways to live. You know, God's design for his people is that we live in deep connection with one another as well as with him. First with him, second with one another. God has created us to live that way. There's nothing wrong with that. He wants us to live in deep community. That's why he puts us in families, right? Genesis 2.18, God said it's not good that the man should be alone. I'll make a help meet for him. Does that mean that everybody must get married because it's not good for us to be alone? Yes. <laughs> yeah, some would think so. <laughs> but that would mean that as long as you're single, your life is not good. <laughs> and some would agree with that too. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm here to tell you, I'm so glad I didn't get married before 27. I love being married. My husband is wonderful, and I am just so blessed to be married to him, but I'm so glad for all the adventures I had and the time that God gave me to ripen in my relationship with him and in maturing. I always joke with my husband that nobody who I knew before I was 25 would have ever wanted to marry me. I had so much growing up to do, so many ways that I needed to understand how to be focused on God and allow him to change me. But at the right time and the right way, God brought the right man to me, and while I'm not a proponent of saying, unless you marry exactly the person that God picked for you, wait and, you know, until he magically, miraculously drops the person on your lap, then marry them at a moment's notice. That's, that's not what I'm saying. But I do know that God brought me together with my husband. I know God can make beautiful relationships between people who marry even for the wrong reasons. So I don't want anyone to be discouraged by going, well, you know, I married the wrong person anyway, so God can't do anything through our marriage. That's simply not true. God can take almost any two personalities and make a beautiful, rich, fulfilling marriage when they're both totally surrendered to him. But having said that, I'm so grateful that I married the right person, the one who fits me so well, and we have such a wonderful relationship. It's just beautiful. 
So when I say it's not good that the man should be alone, I certainly agree that's referring to marriage. But that's not the only thing, because even if God ordains that you live your life single, you will still be able to live a life for his glory, and it will still be rich and deep and fulfilling, as long as you're committed to him and totally filled with his spirit. You see, it's not just marriage that God wants us to have, but deep connection with other people. We need other people. That's why it's not enough just to have a relationship with God. In Acts 1, verses 4 and 5, Jesus commanded the disciples that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. He said, you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Why did they still need to wait for a while? Why did God want them to spend some time waiting? Have you ever noticed that, how many of you have ever gone on a mission trip? When you go on a mission trip with other people, do there sometimes you find little personality issues and things flaring up between you? What about if you don't have money and you don't have decent food and you're in a very uncomfortable situation? Now multiply that by very different personalities, 12 men who lived together for three and a half years. Do you think that maybe there might have been some personal difficulties going on between the guys? Yeah, this guy who just never sits with that guy for good reason, because they always get in an argument, you know. Simon the Zealot just cannot get along with Levi Matthew. Jesus knew these guys are not ready to receive the Holy Spirit. Even though they know that Jesus is the Son of God, they're on fire, they want to get out there and do evangelism. They're so excited about what God is doing. But they're still not ready to go out and do evangelism, because even though they may be right with God, as far as on fire for him and ready to do evangelism, they're not right with one another. And God knew that unless they work those things out between them, those issues are going to divide them, splinter the church apart. They need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And to do so, they need to be emptied of self and able to be in one accord, in one mind, right? So he says, no, you guys don't go out and do any evangelism, actually. I want you to sit down together and pray and work through the ways that you guys have been mean to each other and hateful to one another or avoided one another because I want you to live in deep community with each other. You see, choosing isolation breaks God's law. God says in Matthew 22, 37 through 39, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, if you love the Lord so deeply, but you don't love other people, you are a lawbreaker. You are not fulfilling God's plan for your life, and you're not preparing for heaven, are you? It's not enough to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if you really love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you will love your neighbor as yourself. God is saying this is a cycle. Don't think you can do half of it because you've got to do the other. Now, looking unto Jesus is the only safe path, and we have to focus on God's glory, not on ourselves. But God wants us to know loving God with all of our hearts plus loving our neighbor as ourselves is keeping the law of love, not one by itself. Now, remember we talked last seminar about the cycle of death unto death. When we don't internalize God's love, we will become trapped in either isolationism or immersionism. In other words, we'll need people too much and our relationships with them will become idolatrous, or we will make ourselves the idol and pull ourselves away from other people and put, put up brick walls around ourselves to protect ourselves from being hurt, which is nothing like the way that Jesus lived. God wants us to know that pain is not our enemy, sin is our enemy. 
The cycle of life unto life, though, is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which will lead you to love others. And the more you love others, the more you will love God, no matter how those people relate to you in response. Because it's not about you and it's not about them. It's about God pouring through you for his glory and changing you. Whether people hurt you or welcome you, you're going to be able to learn how to be more like Jesus through the way that they treat you. Not just in spite of the pain, but sometimes actually because of the pain. You'll understand more deeply. And when people hurt you because you have loved them, when you have given yourself unselfishly and you get burnt for it, you learn to fellowship in the sufferings of Christ, who suffered for you when you didn't deserve it. He took upon himself the pain of your sin when you weren't even sorry. So when someone else burns you by their sin, you get to fellowship in the sufferings of Christ, and you understand more of what Jesus went through because of your sin. It leads you to a deeper repentance. So you see, you can do nothing against the truth but for the truth. As long as you cling to God and you resolve, no matter what happens, I'm going to allow these pressures to press me closer to you. I will not let thee go except thou bless me. Then these things will turn into blessings. They will help you to understand God. They will make you richer and deeper and better people. Now, you think about when Jesus was giving out the bread to the disciples when he was feeding the 5,000. Who did he give the disciples? Who, sorry, who did he give the bread to? He gave it to the disciples who passed it on to the other people. You see, we are to be like the hose that takes the water from the spigot out to the garden. I have a hose that goes from the spigot, which is quite a distance from my garden, but this wonderful hose just takes it all the way to the other side of my garden. If it weren't for that, I'd have to be hauling it by bucketfuls. But the hose does this glorious job of just taking it right there. There are many people who are far from God, not because God is far from them, but because they cannot perceive God's love because of whatever damage they have. Maybe they won't, don't even believe in the Bible. Maybe they have been damaged by abuse or other issues in their lives so that they feel that God is far from them. Maybe they're like the woman at the well who could not believe that God loved her, and therefore she went compulsively from relationship to relationship. Whatever it is, God wants to pour his love on those people, but they don't believe in his love, so they won't listen to his voice. It's like listening to someone speaking in a different language. They only speak German. God is speaking French. They don't understand what he's saying, and so he asks you to translate. He asks you to be the hose that takes the water to satisfy their hearts. You take the hand of God with one of your hands, you reach down and you take that person's hand with the other hand, and you bring them to Christ. You bring them to where they can hold his hand, and then when they start sliding away, you pull them back together. You teach them how to love God by being a loving and lovable Christian. I don't know how many times some of my former students have called me and said, oh, Ms. Parker, you don't know how terrible I feel. I've done this awful thing, and I just feel so far from God. And I just, I just don't feel like he loves me, like he cares about what's going on in my life. I've messed up so much. And sometimes I just have to say, you know, how did you even know that I would care? What makes you think that I care? What makes you think that I'm not going to hang up this phone and go, there you go again? And they're like, well, but you, you never do that. You just, you just love us. And I'm like, well, that's the love that God has for you. You know that I care because I've always cared, because I'm always here even when you text me in the middle of the night and say, we just broke up and I feel so terrible. Whatever, you know? I'm there for you because I love you. But that love that I have for you is only God flowing through me. I'm a naturally selfish person, just like you, just like every other person walking on this planet. But when God pours his love through me, you feel that you are loved by me. 
that's God pouring himself through me because you can't understand his love. He pours it through me so you can get it. See what I'm talking about? This is why God wants us to love other people. God wants us to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, right? He gives us the bread and says, take it to others. This is my commandment that ye love one another. As I have loved you, so you also love one another. John 13, 35 says, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Are you starting to see why Jesus said, no, you guys are totally not ready to go out and do evangelism. Instead, you need to go sit in the upper room and pray together all day and make things right between you. You see? The love of God cannot pour through those who have clogs in their hose, those that are still holding on to self some way that they don't want to let God's love flow through them. Not to that person, because that person doesn't make me feel good. That isn't the way that God wants to work. The whole gospel is about this God who transforms human beings into his image by living in us, right? This is a God who takes selfish people, people who are hoses that are full of themselves, and starts scrubbing out the inside so that he can pour himself through us, cleansing us, and in the process, watering the souls of others who need so much to understand him. This is how he empowers us to be like him. You know? He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. Did Jesus live his life self-protectively? No, we, we looked at just a couple of verses in our last presentation where it shows that Jesus did not need people. He did not need his relationships. He, in other words, if a person failed him, it did not destroy Jesus, and it did not make him stop loving them. But it's still God's plan for his church that we all may be one as he is one. Luke 22, verses 60 through 62, talks about what happened when Peter denied Jesus. And it's so fascinating. It says simply, the Lord turned and looked upon Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, and Peter went out and wept bitterly. Now I ask you, why was that so meaningful? If I look at one of you, you know, if I'm going through some kind of persecution up here and I look down at you, you say something rude about me, and I look at you, are you going to feel so terrible about it? What made that look from Jesus so powerful to Peter? Peter knew that Jesus loved him. Peter knew that Jesus was so torn up by his betrayal of him. And that is what broke the heart of Peter. You see, Jesus had been investing for three and a half years in a relationship with Peter. And what converted Peter that night was seeing how much Jesus loved him in the midst of his sin. When Peter saw, there's nothing I can do to merit your grace. I have completely blown it. And you knew I was going to. You told me I was going to. Suddenly it dawned on Peter that Jesus knew all along that I was going to hurt him thus much. But that was irrelevant. Jesus loves me because of who I am. Just because he created me in his image, he has this immeasurable love for me. Knowing I was going to hurt him, he bared his heart to me anyway. And that was what converted the heart of Peter when he realized the love that God had for him. You see, for Jesus, pain was not his enemy. Sin was his enemy. And when he loved... Oh, thank you, Jonah. When, when Jesus poured his love onto Peter, it bore great fruit, didn't it? But did Jesus' love bear great fruit 
in everyone's lives. What about in Judas' life? You see, we minister to people when we love them deeply, but not everyone is going to love us back. Jesus didn't live his life self-protectively. I have a little model here of three circles that just briefly can show you what the friendships of Jesus were like. Now, I don't have enough time to share with you in depth on this area. Um, there's a blog I wrote on the GYC website, if you want to go look it up, at gycweb.org, kind of a few months back. But I wrote about this, this concept. But Jesus had three layers of his friendships. He had that outer layer that was anybody who came in contact with him, the multitude, the Pharisees, anybody who heard about him, anyone who Jesus had any influence on their lives, they fit in that outer layer. <clears throat> now the second layer were the disciples. They were different because Jesus actively cultivated them. He was mentoring them. He was drawing them and teaching them, investing in them. He didn't choose them because they were not going to hurt him. Because interestingly enough, he put Judas into that category, didn't he? What about the demoniacs? When they tried to get into the boat to go back across the Sea of Galilee with Jesus, what did he say to them? Nope, you guys stay in the outer layer. You see, he wasn't going to spend time mentoring them because he was strategic. He knew these guys are going to be more effective working here. They have already partaken deeply of my love, and it's transformed them, and they're going to continue being transformed as they stay here. But with the disciples, he invested more time in them. He was mentoring them cultivating them. What about the inner circle? Who was Jesus' inner circle? Peter, James, and John were three that were in Jesus' inner circle. I think there were more. I think his mother was also in that inner circle. What is the inner circle? What's the difference between the inner circle and those disciples, just all of the disciples, maybe even the 70, you know, other people that Jesus also mentored, because it says there were women who traveled around with them sometimes too. There were, there were quite a few people probably in that second circle. But the inner circle was pretty small. You have Peter, James, John, Mary, Jesus' mother, and I think according to the book Desire of Ages, it seems very plain that there were three others, Mary Magdalene, Martha, and Lazarus. They're one small family, three siblings. They live in the city of Bethany, little town, and Jesus would go to their house. He found strength and nourishment from the people in his inner circle. And we, we also need to have all three of these circles. We need an inner circle, people that we gain strength from. They may not be people who we're mentoring. Maybe they're mentors who are helping us. We need people who are close enough to us to say, I think that there's something wrong with the way that you're handling this. You know, you don't seem to have good enough boundaries. I'm noticing you're not having a solid devotional time with God. Is there something you're struggling with? It seems like maybe you're struggling with pride or you're worried too much about what people think of you. You see what I mean? People who are close enough to us to make us really uncomfortable sometimes. That inner circle are also people who nurture us. They can confront us deeply, but they also nurture us deeply. They're people who we are very close to. You know, I have friends that when I was going through a very stressful time last year, I could just call up crying and say, please pray with me. I'm going through so much. They were there. They didn't have to know what I was going through. They could just pray with me, be there for me, whatever it was I was going through at that moment. We need people like that. You don't know when a crisis is going to hit you, when your family is going to be killed, when you're going to have a health condition, or a crisis comes up. You need nurturing relationships. You need people in that inner circle. 
And maybe even more than that, you need people who can confront you about ways that you're not living biblically. If everyone is in your outer two circles, it's easy to get proud, to think, wow, you know, look at all these people who look up to me. Look at how many people I bless. But what happens when you're struggling with a sin issue? Do you have no one you can turn to? What about if you have a deep question? Which direction should I go in my life? You need someone in that inner circle, someone who knows you well. Your parents may be in that inner circle, your spouse. But whoever it is, you need people in that inner circle. Jesus seems to have had seven. And isn't it interesting that Jesus puts Peter in the inner circle? You see, Jesus is our example in all things. He wanted us to know you don't just put people in your inner circle who you're certain are never going to betray you or are never going to hurt you. He deliberately put Peter there because he wanted to model for us how you treat people in your inner circle if they betray you. He wanted us to know you are hurt when you're betrayed by someone who is in your inner circle who you love deeply. I was hurt that way too. And I'll show you how to love that person. Can you be hurt by people who are in your second circle? Oh yes. It can hurt so much to pour yourself into someone and then to look at it all and see this is just a waste. Not only a waste, but maybe this person actually comes out the other side hating me, resenting me because I confronted them about some way that I saw they were not living biblically. It's not fun. But unless you're strong enough in your relationship with God to be willing to go to that person, to love them enough to say, I'm really concerned. I see that you're flourishing in ministry and a lot of people are looking up to you, but I think that you're struggling with a problem. Maybe pride, maybe feeling like you can do it on your own. Maybe you're not having enough time with God. You need people who can confront you on that level. If you have only an inner circle and an outer circle, you don't have anybody you're mentoring. If you just have people who make you feel nurtured and comforted and then random people out there in the world, you're not investing your time wisely enough. Jesus invested in people. He was strategic because he knew this is how you bring about the kingdom of God most effectively, by investing in some, by having a nurturing, safe place where you can love deeply, <coughs> excuse me, you can love deeply and be loved deeply, and you have to keep that outer circle. What happens if you only have the two inner circles and you don't have an outer circle? You lose touch with the fact that a lot of people are very different than you. What about the missionaries? What about the person at the grocery store who's working at your checkout line? Does she know Jesus? You need to be able to be conscious that there's that outer circle. You may not invest a lot of time in them, but you should invest in them in the best way that you can. Make sure that your contact with them, even if it's casual, consistent ref consistently reflects the love of God and their worth. When somebody pulls in front of you on the road, cuts you off, how do you, retreat, how do you treat that person? Are you going to minister to them? Or are you going to honk your horn and be angry at them? God wants us to treat all three of our circles consistently the way that Jesus treated his circles. And what I see from this example, and Jesus is our example in all things, right? Is I see that Jesus did not live self-protectively. He invested wisely, he invested strategically, but he purposely invested in someone he knew who was a waste, Judas. Because even though he knew Judas was a waste, he knew that we would need to be able to see that Investing in people who are a waste is not a waste. Because even if you invest in person and they turn their back and it's a waste of your time, it's never a waste to love someone. It may not change them, but it will change you. It changes you. It helps you to become like Jesus. It shows you what Jesus has gone through for you. Jesus did not live his life self-protectively. In Mark 10, 21, we mentioned this in our last presentation briefly, 
when the rich young ruler came to Jesus, he says, oh, I'll give you everything. I just want to follow you. And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to sell everything and come live like me. Now think for a minute what it was like in that real situation, that real life situation. Here's a guy who, the moment he walks up to the disciples, they know his status. Why? Because he's wearing rich clothes. Everywhere he goes in Jerusalem, everybody knows this guy has got it together. The embroidery on his clothes, the way that he walks, you know, he's got wealth, he's got position. And yet Jesus says, you're going to have to give all that up and come and follow me. But I'll give you treasure in heaven, if that's any comfort. But isn't it interesting that before Jesus confronts this man with that truth, it says, and Jesus beholding him, loved him. Now, Mark writing this, how does he know that Jesus loved that man? It must have been something evident even to the onlookers, even to the disciples that are standing there. They see the way Jesus looks at this rich young man, and Jesus beholding him loved him. What love was in the eyes of Jesus as he looks at this guy? He knows, I'm going to tell you in a second that it's going to cost too much, and you're going to turn your back on me and say, you're not worth that. But for this moment, let me look at you and love you. You see, Jesus is not pouring out love on this guy because he thinks he's going to get anything back. He knows this guy's about to turn away. He already knows it. That's why he confronts him with what's at his heart. But Jesus, beholding him, loved him. And when you behold people, whether they're going to hurt you or not, whether they have hurt you or not, you must behold them and love them. Because that's the way Jesus lived, and he is our example in all things. Jesus didn't love self-protectively. He loved, he poured himself out. And we sometimes, as Christians, will have to pour our hearts out as a drink offering before the Lord, going, Lord, here I am. I'm pouring out this love, and I know it's probably a waste. This person is not going to give their lives to you, no matter how much effort I pour into them. But still, you've told me to love them, and I'm going to love them to the best of my ability. Here's how love works. God is that great gear that turns the Christian gear, that turns the seeker gear. God wants us to allow him to pour his love through us, which will turn us, which will in turn turn others to glorify him. God ordained this cycle in families and communities and churches. It doesn't work very well in our society often because the vital link family is broken. But this is the way God wants it to be. And when our family link is broken, when parents don't reflect God's love, it may be hard for us to connect. Our gears don't connect with God, and we're like, but, but, but I don't understand your love. I know you say you love me, but I don't feel you love me. That's why God ordained the church, to give people a second chance to understand what love looks like with feet on it. The God Attachment book, God Attachment, page 126, says, We are wounded in relationships, and we are healed in them too. We won't make much progress on our own. We may want to remain isolated so we can read and study on our own, but we won't take many steps forward that way. <clears throat> some people are wounded in their family of origin, some by friends, some by casual acquaintances. I remember remarks that a kid made about me at summer camp about my appearance that just stung me to the heart, you know, telling me I had little pig eyes and stuff like that. And to this day, I remember how painful it was as a little, you know, 12-year-old or whatever I probably was. It stung me for years. And yet, was that really meaningful? We find healing when we look to God for the sense of identity and who he wants us to see. He wants us to drink deeply 
of his love. He wants us to see him as the center of our lives instead of what people think of us. God Attachment, page 124, says, We must find in Christ the courage to admit where we are without casting any blame on others or the situation. For those who have been physically, sexually, verbally, or emotionally abused, you are not to be blamed for what happened to you. You catch that? In my presentation, another one that's on audio verse, um, Beauty for Ashes, I share about how I was sexually abused and abused in other ways, and it really powerfully impacted on my ability to believe that God could love me. But God is able to heal that. You see, on the other hand, you are responsible for your life today and the way you live. You may be hurt by things from the past, but God wants to heal those things. Remember, he heals the broken in heart and binds up their wounds. That is a promise that in any way that you, you have experienced brokenness, God wants to turn that into a scar. Scars don't keep hurting. In fact, a scar can be a blessing because when someone else comes to you and says, see how I was wounded? You can pull up your sleeve and say, see, I was wounded that way too, but it's just a scar. I healed. Let me show you how God can heal you too. You see, a scar can be a blessing when you allow God to heal you and to show you how he can heal others through you. Our responsibility to forgive and to move on will set us free. <coughs> now, how do attachment issues develop? O often, the problem when a person can't attach deeply to other people, that they live self-protectively, those attachment issues develop from ways that their parents or other significant caregivers may have betrayed them in the past. Detachment is being emotionally inaccessible. If you have a parent that's never there, you know, I think it's Michael Card who wrote this, wrote this song, Under the Door, where he tells about the little boy always trying to push notes under his daddy's door, but his dad won't have anything to do with him. You see, God wants us to be parents who are emotionally accessible to our children. If we aren't, we damage their ability to believe that God is emotionally accessible. But God will still be able to heal them as they meditate on his word and find out that he is who he says he is, not who our parents have painted him to be. Abandonment issues happen if a, a parent connects and then leaves. I have a friend who really battles to connect with any, anyone of the opposite sex because for him, his mother abandoned him when he was just a few years old and it's very difficult for him to get past a certain level emotionally in a relationship with another person. With a woman, he just feels she's going to abandon me too. He can't get past that. He can't grow closer to a woman than only thus far, no farther. It's because of the abandonment. Inconsistency, an unstable love object, a parent that showers love on you one time and shoves you away and screams at you another time, damages your ability to believe that God is consistent in his love for you. It makes you feel that God is going to push you away if you don't do everything right too. Criticism, unloving attacks where a person seems to be saying, you know, you're not valuable unless you do everything perfectly, unless you do everything the way I want. These things damage our ability to connect deeply with God and therefore with other people. And abuse, violations that destroy trust. The, this list is from the book Safe People, page 71. And you know, these are all things that can have happened in your past or in the past of someone you're trying to minister to. The point is, though, your past is not your past if it's affecting your future. It's in the past, but you want to break the bonds. You want to break the chains that the devil puts over your heart, making you believe that God is going to be like those people have been to you. People fail us. God never fails us. The book God Attachment, page 127, is where it says your past is not your past if it's affecting your future. 
Now I want to share with you the four attachment styles from the book God Attachment, which I found to be a very illuminating book on understanding how the, how the heart attaches to other people and how God heals us if other people have damaged us. The secure attachment style says, I'm okay and you're okay. Um, the anxious attachment style says, I'm not okay, but you're okay. Right? So the top two are, you're okay either way. But one of them says, I'm okay and you're not okay. Or, I'm, I'm not okay and you're okay. The avoidant one says, I'm okay and you're not okay. And the fearful one says, I'm not okay and you're not okay. In other words, God wants you to be secure, to know I am worthwhile and loved on a deep level, and so is every other person around me because we're all created in the image of God. But you may have been damaged in your past in a way that made you develop an anxious attachment style. I never do everything right. People aren't going to really love me if they know how bad I am. Look at everybody else. They're all so beautiful. They have everything together. They seem to be so happy and so loved, and all those married people are so happy, but here I am, single and miserable, right? The avoidant attachment style will say, I'm okay and you're not okay. In other words, I've got it all together. When I look at what messes you guys make of your lives, look at me. You know, that you hold yourself back from other people. You don't need anyone. No one's going to be there for you either because you know everybody always fails everybody. This is where often a person who's a criminal will fall. They have great self-esteem. I feel terrific about myself. You guys are all the idiots. Right? And if they don't value other people, it's easy to trample on other people. When other people don't seem to be making you happy, they don't seem to fulfill your needs, you're ready to take a knife to them. That's how a lot of people end up in prison. Great self-esteem. They feel like they're wonderful. They deserve everything. And if anybody else doesn't acknowledge their needs and wishes and desires, then they'll trample on them. The fearful attachment style says, I'm not okay and you're not okay. Nobody's okay here. I'm depressed and anxious and needy and compliant and whatever in just waves, you know. I'll manipulate now and the next minute I'll be pulling myself away to protect myself because nobody else is going to be out there for me either to protect me. No one loves me and I don't love myself and the world is a terrible place, right? How do you know which one of these you are? And I don't think anybody fits into one category all the time. In fact, a lot of people swing back and forth between being anxious and then avoidant or, you know, back and forth, whatever. I'm going to give you a very brief summary of each one of them. The avoidant attachment style says, I'm okay and you're not okay, remember? I don't like sharing my feelings with others. I don't like it when my partner wants to talk about his or her feelings. I have a hard time understanding how other people feel. When I get stressed, I try to deal with the situation all by myself. You may be able to think of someone else who fits this category, but try to think of yourself too. You know, is this something that sometimes characterizes my relationships? You may just be partly one way, partly another. My partner often complains that I don't like to talk about how I feel. I don't really need close relationships. Remember, this is avoidant. I highly value my independence and self-sufficiency. I don't worry about being alone or abandoned. I don't worry about being accepted by others. I tend to value personal achievements and success over close, intimate relationships. Now, many people might say, well, that sounds like a choleric personality. Well, I'm not saying that this isn't the way that some people are born with these natural sinful tendencies to say, I got it together, you guys don't. But the point is, God wants us to come into balance where we realize, you know, I'm faulty, but I'm deeply loved by God. You're faulty, but you're also deeply loved by God. And our worth is not measured by any of our achievements, our strengths, our weaknesses, or whatever. 
It's all about the love of God. But as we embrace the love of God in a deep way, in our own selves, in our own identities, it empowers us to love other people, not in order to get anything out of them, but just because God loves them. An anxious attachment style will relate more to these um, expressions. I really like sharing my feelings with my partner, but he or she does not seem as open as I am. You realize an anxious person is more likely to cling to an avoidant person, right? Magnets are unbalanced and that's why they like each other. Yeah, my feelings can get out of control very quickly. Ooh. I worry about being alone. I worry about being abandoned in close relationships. My partner complains that I am too clingy and too emotional. I strongly desire to be very intimate with people. In my closest relationships, the other person doesn't seem as desirous of intimacy and closeness as I am. I worry a great deal about being rejected by others. I tend to value close, intimate relationships over personal achievement and success. And when I get stressed, I desperately seek others for support, but no one seems as available as I would like them to be. Can you see how this person has become too overly focused on people meeting their needs? This person is looking for someone to satisfy them. You're okay, but I'm not okay. The fearful attachment style is even worse. My feelings are very confusing to me, so I try not to feel them. My feelings are very intense and overwhelming. I feel torn between wanting to be close to others and wanting to pull away. My partner complains that sometimes I'm really needy and clingy, and other times I'm distant and aloof. I have a difficult time letting others get close to me, but once I let them in, I worry about being abandoned or rejected. I feel very vulnerable in close relationships. Sometimes I feel very disconnected from myself and my feelings. I can't decide whether or not I want to be in close relationships. Other people can really hurt you if you let them get too close. And close relationships are difficult to come by because people tend to be unpredictable in their actions and behaviors. Doesn't sound like a very happy way to live, does it? And yet I know people who fit very well into that category. God wants us, instead, to have a secure attachment style. He wants us to be so secure in His love that we don't love other people in order to get them to love us back, but just because God's love pours through us to them. I find it easy to share my feelings with people I'm close to. I like it when my partner wants to share his or her feelings with me. I am comfortable getting close to others, but I also feel comfortable being alone. I expect my partner to respect who I am, I expect my partner to respond to my needs in a sensitive and appropriate way. Building intimacy in relationships comes relatively easy to me. I let myself feel my emotions, but I'm rarely, if ever, overwhelmed by them. I'm able to understand and respond sensitively to my partner's feelings. I do a decent job balancing my need for intimacy with my need for achievement and success. When I get stressed, I feel comfortable seeking comfort from my partner and or close friends. Can you see how this could develop if a person has a healthy, well-balanced family growing up? You see how your parents affect so dramatically your ability to attach to other people in life. This is why when people you know, worry, well, my parents got divorced, am I never going to be able to hold a marriage together too? Not necessarily, but you're going to have to be able to become conscious of the patterns of attachment that maybe weren't so healthy in your family. Doesn't mean that every divorced family has patterns of attachment that are wrong. There are other issues that happen. 
You know, you can't control whether people are going to treat you well. A parent may die, and then you may have feelings of, you know, fear that someone else is going to abandon them. Your parent didn't mean to die, it just happens. But God has a way to make up for any of these ways that you struggle to attach to other people, whether it's personality or environment, whether you were born this way or you developed into this by other people's sins against you, there's good news. God brings us into balance. Who are we supposed to be looking to, self or to Christ? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, we're able to bring our lives into balance, not by doing things, but by focusing on him and letting him work in us. When he brings us into a deep relationship with him and makes us secure in him, we no longer attach to people out of need or fear. You see, need and fear-based relationships are poisonous. They hurt us. But love-based relationships are powerful and beautiful. And whether or not the other person causes us pain, they're still beautiful. That's because they teach us how to love God. I should act like I'm accidentally spilling water on my Mac, huh? That would wake everybody up. <laughs> God attachment, page 127, says, Even pain we've buried for years need not keep clouding our lives. With the love of God and a few trusted friends, we can overcome anxious, avoidant, and fearful patterns in relationships. How do we learn to live a balanced life in attachment with other people? First of all, by attaching to God. The book, The Desire of Ages, page 22, says, Only by love is love awakened. Isn't that beautiful? Only by love is love awakened. You should not feel terribly guilty about the fact you don't love God. If you don't feel close to God and you don't love Him, admit it to yourself. Admit it to Him. And then behold His love. Spend time in His Word. Don't spend an hour reading 10 chapters of the Bible a day. That's going to do very little to transform your life. Instead, meditate on a verse or a short story. You know, for example, like I was just telling you, that, that rich young ruler, when I meditated on that story, I got so many lessons out of it, realizing here's this guy who comes to Jesus because he still feels this restless dissatisfaction in his heart. But overall, he feels great about himself. He has great self-esteem. He comes from a wonderful family. He has beautiful clothes. When he walks into the bank, everybody goes, Oh, hey, can I help you? But the disciples don't have all of that. And when he looks at them and says, Wow, I want to be one of these guys, where everybody looks at them and goes, You follow who? Oh, come on. Are you serious? He's like, I can't take that. I can't take that. What was his real problem? He thought too much of what people thought of him and of his comforts. You see, he wanted to be in control of his life. To look at what we talked about in the last presentation, he was on the anxious side, the self-reliant side. He felt pretty good about himself. He didn't feel a tremendous need for God, and therefore he wasn't going to turn to God. But having wealth made him feel like he was in control. What if you had only one dollar left in the bank? How would you feel? Yeah, some of you probably only do, right? <laughs> no, you owe $20,000 to Southern, right? <laughs> Never mind that one dollar. <laughs> But, you know, we live in a, in a culture where you have credit, where you have welfare. Back then, if your house burned down, your house was gone. There was no insurance. There was nothing to keep him from being left on the street, except for his family, of course. He's got a few things going for him, but not very much, right? So his wealth is his security. 
It's his worldly confidence that he's going to make it. I've got a house, and if that house burns down, I've got enough money to build another house. You see what I'm talking about? He wanted to be in control of his life, and he wanted other people to think well of him. So it's understandable. The things that controlled his life were things that often control our lives, too. You see, when you study a short story like that in your devotional time, you imagine yourself in that situation. Maybe you study more about the culture or what was going on in those days. How would this guy have related to life? It will help you to understand better how the gospel applies to your life. You see, the love of Jesus is poured out upon each one of us, but we'll never feel it and understand it unless we drink deeply from his word. Jeremiah 2.13 says that my people have committed two evils. There are only two sins that you can commit. The first one is forsaking God, the fountain of living water. That means God is there pouring out his love, but you refuse to drink of it. You don't spend time with him in prayer. You don't spend time with him in the Bible. Or when you study the Bible or when you pray, you're not doing them in biblical ways. You're not pouring yourself out in adoration for God. You're doing this shallow little quick, you know, help me to do well on this test. Help this to be a nice day. Please help me not to embarrass myself and help so-and-so to like me. You know, whatever it is, a shallow prayer doesn't really pour you out before a vulnerable God. You won't feel deeply loved, not because you aren't deeply loved, but because you aren't loving him back. You're not drinking in his love. So when you commit the first evil of forsaking the fountain of living water, you will, of necessity, hew out for yourself broken cisterns which have no water, right? So Jeremiah 2.13 accurately describes the sin cycle. My people commit two evils. They forsake me, the fountain of living water. They hew out broken cisterns that hold no water. So whatever broken cistern you go to, whether it's drugs or sex or food or, you know, being popular or getting good grades or doing ministry or anything that you go to, it can be music or movies, whatever it is you're escaping to, it's kind of irrelevant which one it is. The point is, this is the cycle you're caught in. And in order to break free from it, you've got to cut off both of those sins. Because the more you go to those other broken cisterns, the less you're going to drink deeply from the fountain of living water. The less you drink deeply from the fountain of living water, the more thirsty you will be and the more uncontrollable you're craving for the things that you're addicted to. And when you break free from one addiction, you'll go to another. So you may be, you know, maybe you can break free from alcohol, but next it'll be movies, then it'll be sex, then it'll be food, then it'll be addictive relationships. It's all, you know, interwoven. It doesn't really matter. The key to breaking free from an addictive cycle is to hit it on both sides. You've got to start drinking deeply from the fountain of living water, believing that God is who he says he is, and not who you feel he is. And secondly, you've got to stop the behavior. But that's, that's, only, that's not going to fix it on its own. So many people say, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to do this anymore. But the next thing they know, they're doing it again or doing something even worse because they didn't allow Christ to drink, you know, to sink deeply into their hearts to satisfy them. And if you don't have Christ in your heart deeply, you're just an idolater looking for a God to worship. You will worship something because you're created to worship. You can't decide not to worship. You'll just pick what you're going to worship, either God or self. So when you want to love God, listen to him in his word. Pour yourself out to him in prayer. If you haven't read the book Steps to Christ in a while, go read that chapter on prayer, chapter 11. It's incredible. And use it, you know, so many times I've gone back there for the simple recipe for prayer. Keep your wants, your joys, your sorrows, your cares, and your fears before God. So just sit down with God and say, I, I don't even know how to start, you know. It's been a long time since I've talked with you, but my wants, what are my needs, Lord? These are the things that I need. I need a sense of worth. 
I need to know you love me because I'm finding myself compulsively driven to looking for relationships. When I walk through the crowd of people making out on the dorm steps, I think, why not me? How come nobody loves me? You know what I mean? Be real with God. He's not surprised by it. Tell him what you need. Tell him what your joys are. Tell him what your sorrows are. Tell him what your cares are. What are you worried about? Your fears. Pour these things out to God and drink deeply of his love. His word is where he writes back to you. Look at a story where Jesus dealt with someone who felt the things that you feel. Maybe the woman caught in adultery. Maybe the woman at the well. Maybe Nicodemus, who felt like he was rich and increased with goods and had need of nothing. Maybe blind Bartimaeus. Whoever it is that you can relate to, go to a story in the Bible, anywhere in the Bible, and drink deeply from the lessons of the story of David or Joseph or Daniel. Or just take a verse and drink deeply from what does this verse say and how does it apply to my life. You must have an application to your own life or it's not going to transform you personally. But when you give your life to God, when you drink deeply of his love, that's the way that you awaken love within yourself. Only by love is love awakened. To know God is to love him. In other words, as you learn who God is, and as you meditate on how much he loves you, maybe even just by going out in nature, looking at that huge sky and thinking, wow, you rule it all and you came down here to die for little old me? That will help you to understand his love and love for him will be awakened in return. Then you'll find yourself being so excited about what God is doing in your life, you can't help witnessing to others. Prayer, Bible study, witnessing, these are the three things that create that cycle of excitement where love for God grows more and more. You see, you may realize intellectually, I have a problem with being able to attach to others. Whatever problem that is, though, you're not going to be able to overcome it by trying hard. Instead, you overcome by giving yourself completely to Christ. You know, when I was uh, 15, I climbed Mount Whitney, and these huge granite cliffs were just amazing to me. Wow, this white granite. I'd never seen anything more beautiful in all of my life. It was amazing. And I realized, as I was out there, the majesty of God and how high those cliffs are. But I remember when we were almost at the top of the mountain one day, we had to go on this narrow little trail that was right on the edge of a cliff. Now, I love rock climbing, but looking down that cliff was not encouraging to me. Why? Because I didn't have a rope on, that's why. I was just walking along a little trail with a backpack on my back and thinking, you know, if this trail like crumbled, I would go down that was not in any way encouraging to me. It was just terrifying. What makes you have the courage when you look over the cliff into relationship abyss and think, I could get really hurt if I trust this person. You're not going to be able to persuade yourself to just leap off the edge. And if you do, you will be unbalanced. Many people, they, they live the, in such an isolationist mentality, building the walls around themselves, that finally they crave love and attachment so much that they leap into relationships unwisely. Someone finally triggers something and they just gush out and go onto the opposite side of immersionism. They can't get away, they're idolatrous, they're obsessed, they know it, they can't break free, they hate what they're doing, but they're powerless to stop. You don't want to live in this leap off the cliff because I'm so desperate there's a forest fire coming behind me kind of relationships, right? You want to live sensibly with the power of God and the love of God at the center of your life. This is how you do it. By having that rope that comes down from God 
to carry you. In other words, when you look over the edge into the risk of being hurt in a relationship, you've got to know that you're hanging from a rope that's going to help you. In other words, if you fall and you get all skinned up and it hurts a lot, you've got to know, but this rope is going to carry me. You know, I, I just talked to somebody the other day who is getting married, and she was terrified of how she was going to be hurt because she's been married before, and her husband betrayed her. And I told her, you know, you're never going to be able to leap into truly loving and giving yourself to someone unless you're able to take the risk of being hurt. Somehow, you've got to come to the point where you realize if I give myself to this person, yes, he may hurt me, but the guy that she was planning to marry was a Christian. And as far as she could tell, he was a godly man who loves her, who loves the Lord with all his heart, and who's not going to betray her. Yet she's terrified to take the risk of being hurt. And I said, you're going to have to realize that God is going to be enough for you. When you get married to this guy, you're taking a risk because you're marrying a human being. Even I, married to the most wonderful man in the world, <laughs> and I am, but even I took a risk in marrying a sinner because he could turn himself around and decide to leave God and I'll be left raising my children, desperately trying to teach them about the love of God when they have a father who is you know, trying to break down that very image of God that I'm trying to build up in their minds. That's a risk. Every person who gets married puts themselves into covenant relationship with another person who's a sinner and who could betray them. So you're taking a risk when you get married. That, I don't mean that you should marry foolishly or that, you know, that a person should be in an abusive relationship and just say, I've just got to keep on loving, keep on pouring myself out and getting beat up. You're, you're in the image of God. Your body is the temple of God, and sometimes you have to do things to protect yourself from just falling into this. I wouldn't want anyone to take this presentation and warp it into an excuse to stay in abusive relationships because that's not what this is about at all. What I'm talking about is living self-protectively instead of being willing to at times confront things biblically, especially in a relationship where you value it so much that you're willing to take a risk of being hurt deeply. Jesus took a risk of being hurt deeply when he created Adam and Eve, knowing he was going to be hurt. We don't know who's going to betray us, but as I told my friend, I said, you know, when you look at this situation and you realize this guy could hurt me very deeply, and he will hurt me. When you marry somebody, they will hurt you. I said, you've got to look at this situation and consciously make the decision. If he betrays me, if he does the worst he can do, maybe he cheats on me, something like that. If he puts me through more pain than I can possibly imagine right now, I've got to know that God is going to be enough that God is going to carry me through, that his love will be sufficient, that no matter what this person does to me, it will not destroy me. You see, when you have a deep relationship with God and you have that security that you are deeply loved and that your worth is based on him and his love for you, it will give you the courage to take a risk in a relationship with a person, a risk of being hurt. Not because you're a glutton for punishment, not because you want to be hurt, but because Jesus takes a risk, because Jesus took a risk in loving you. God's rope that he extends down to you is made up of three things, prayer, Bible study, and service. As you do all three of these things, as a means, not, not as a way of working your way to heaven, but as a means of connecting deeply with God, these three things will strengthen your belief in his love for you so that you will love him back. 
and your love relationship with God will connect you so deeply with him that you will be able to trust him that no matter what happens to you, whether you end up like Joseph in prison unfairly when you haven't done anything wrong, you're falsely accused and you can't do anything to control your, your situation, to, it will enable you not to be bitter, to know the worst has happened to me, but God will be enough. This is what will give you the power to attach to people knowing that they're likely to hurt you, just the way that Jesus did with Peter, with Judas, with the rich young ruler. Jesus loved knowing that they're going to hurt him. And we sometimes must love knowing that we're going to be hurt. The book God Attachment, pages 278 and 279 says, if you're predominantly anxious and feel guilty when you sense you're, not, you sense you're not doing something right, give yourself a break. Ask God to help you through these feelings to truly connect with him in a secure way. He really does love you. On the other hand, if you're primarily avoidant or fearful, ask God to help you to trust that he is capable of being there for you and loving you. Seek him with all of your heart, even when he feels distant. He really is there for you. Evaluate prayerfully. Who is it that has your heart? Or what has your heart? If you're living too vulnerably with other people, needing them too much, chances are your, your self-absorption is driving you to need-based or fear-based relationships instead of love-based relationships. On the other hand, if you don't trust God, you may not trust anyone to protect your heart, and you may live not vulnerably enough, not risking being hurt, and that will hold you back and cheapen your life. It'll make you shallow, and it'll make you unable to really partake deeply of God's love in the midst of brokenness. It's worth being broken when you get the chance to be healed by God's love. So evaluate prayerfully. Who is God to you? How is your image of who God is, how does that relate to who God says he is in the Bible? In what ways do, do you think that God is like this, and yet you feel that God is like that? And what are your heart thirsts? When you sit down with your journal and just pray, Lord, show me, what is it that I'm craving the most in this world? He'll help you. Listen to what your heart thirsts after. Where do you turn when you're down? What are those things that you crave? And what craving drives you to destructive thoughts and or behaviors? What motivates you to spend your time the way that you do? You see, when a person is addicted to something, like for example, I talked to somebody the other day who's addicted to pornography. And he's desperate, he've tri he's tried so hard. He can make it for a few weeks, then he falls back into it. I told him, you've gotta get to what's the root there. Because the root issue is not the pornography. The root issue is what you're craving. There's something that God wants to be for you and you're not letting God be that for you and that's why you keep going back to that. You can keep on snipping off the leaves from your dandelion plant, but that's not gonna do anything until you get to the root. Ask God, what is it that I'm craving? Is it power? Sometimes you can tell by what kind of thing you're you know, attracted to. Sometimes the kind of pornography that a person is attracted to will give me a hint for what it is they're craving. Is it power? Is it intimacy? Whatever it is, it's something that God holds and that he would like you to be able to have confidence in him for. And when you do that, that will break the hold of the addiction on you. You've got to break the cycle on both sides. Remember, stop the behavior, but start drinking deeply from God, or you'll go straight back to it. What is your God like? What is God like in your mind? Prayerfully evaluate in your devotional time how the God you worship is different than the God of the Bible. 
sometimes you can find clues by prayerfully evaluating what your life has been like up to this point. What did you long for as a child? Did you wish that your dad would just go for long walks with you, holding your hand, or, or play a game of ball with you? Did you wish somebody would just sit down and listen to how your day went? Maybe that's what you're craving from God, too. You can look at what it is that you long for in relationships with other people. What do you instinctively seek when you are down? What does your heart ache for? And where does God promise to satisfy your heart longings? You know, I remember talking with a girl who had just gone through an excruciating breakup. She was devastated when her boyfriend left her. She didn't know how to keep going. But day by day, she'd call me crying, and I'd pray with her and encourage her and share with her from scriptures. And she started for the first time to really understand the love of God for her. And you know, I remember one day when she called me and she said, you just won't believe what I read in my devotional time. She was crying. She read to me what she'd read. And she said, you know, I, I always knew about God, but I, I just didn't know how beautiful he was. For her, that breakup, which seemed to her to be the end of her life, was really just the beginning. As she was starting to understand for the first time, real love, real security with someone who was never going to betray her, who's, with someone who wasn't going to look at other women and go, wow, she's prettier than you, I think I'll head for her instead. But finding a true security that wasn't based on anything she did or looked like or whether she treated him right or made him happy, but a God who loves her no matter what. Because he is love. He can't change. He is the Lord. He changes not. When you have a deep confidence in your lovability and worth, rooted in that love of God, that will free you to know him and to believe that the love he has for you is real. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, we need so much to know and believe the love that you have for us. And I know that that is the one thing that will bring us into harmony with you and make us free to be filled with your spirit. Lord, I pray that for every person who is listening to this presentation, that they will know and believe the love that you have for them, and that they will be free to love other people, not because they want to get anything out of them, but because you have loved them. Lord, teach us to love, that we may be in harmony with you and ready for you when you come to take us home. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.